Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Creative Connections. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, I am joined by an amazing actor and director, Darren Yap. Darren, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you very much, Adam. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. It's great to uh, actually meet you. Uh, Well, I've heard about you through my mate, Valerie. So, you know, she's a good egg. So, yeah, great to chat. And so, yeah, as I said, you're an actor and a director. How did theatre and performance become a part of your life? Well, it's a, it's kind of a complicated thing because I, to be honest with you, I yes, I started as an actor, but I only went back to acting last year. So I basically stopped for twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, Adam. Um, so um, and then moved into directing. But to answer your question, I. I I always wanted to act and because I guess, which sounds such a nerdy thing to say, um, but I went to Newington College in, in Sydney and it was a private boys' school and it was really about football. It wasn't really about um, drama, but I did, I did the drama classes and the school musicals and I really got a thing about that and a bug to enjoy that. Um, and I was very lucky to um, be the, the youngest of, of kids, so I um, ended up just going, hey, mum and dad, I want to be an actor. And you have to understand, Adam, in the 80s, and being Chinese, that was a weird thing to to do. Um, and I had a lot of people going, as my career's master, that's probably not going to work because you're Chinese. But I was determined. So, I um, yeah, I acted for about 10 to 12 years, and then I had some pretty bad stage fright, to be honest, and then I moved into directing. Yeah, right. So that the stage fright was part of the motivation to going into directing? <laughs> it certainly did. Uh, the, 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 really, the bottom line is the stage fright, I think it was 1996. <laughs> I was doing Miss Saigon. I was performing in that. But I had such a kind of fright from doing it. I, I kind of got over myself and recovered, if, if you can. But to be honest, Adam, I had no, no, no any, not any other skills. So I, I really didn't know what else to do. I've been so lucky to go from high school to um, Theatre Nepean where I trained into my first acting work. So all of a sudden I'm, you know, 26, 27 going, I have no, I have no other skill. Um, <laughs> so I basically hooked myself up with um, a gig. I think I w- assisted Robin Nevin at the STC and that was great. And I did a few things with her and I, I really enjoyed the directing bit. And then I. As you do sometimes, um, I made. I just took a risk and I applied for the night of directors course, and and so it was kind of a natural thing, I guess. But uh, to the, the bottom line is, I had. I don't think I had any other options, Adam, because I just didn't have any other skills. And so, Darren was. Did night seem like that was the best option for you, just to sharpen the, some some skills? Look, it's a really great question, and the and and I, I still talk to some mates who are considering doing something like the writer's course there at night or all, and it's changed a bit now, or the directing. The reason I did it, to be honest, was everyone knew me in those 10 to 12 years as an actor. Uh, there weren't many Asian actors at that time working professionally, and so, but everyone knew me as an actor. And I thought if I'm going to be taken seriously as a director, I would have to be seen to be taking it seriously and taking a year off. I do remember that very clearly. And so when I did get into the course, I thought, Oh God, I'm a mature age student. I really, um, 
<laughs> it frightened me to be a student again, but I thought, well, people are taking it seriously that I obviously want to be a director. So I have no regrets with that. And I think it was appealing, to be honest, Adam, that it was only a year as opposed to three years. So it meant I had to kind of go quickly through it to come out the other end. And as you said, last year you got back on stage, you played the Sultan in Aladdin, you toured New Zealand, uh, Adelaide and Singapore. How did that feel to get back on stage? Uh, I was only talking to Valerie about this a few weeks ago. She came out for dinner. Uh, it's an interesting conundrum because I have no regrets doing it. It was eight months. This is particularly to do with musicals. Not everyone as a performer likes musicals. I, I kind of used to want to be in them, strangely. And I have to say at 52, having to do compulsory warm-ups on a Sunday morning, I found that very difficult. <laughs> I thought the idea after directing for so long and leaving a show after opening night, and there I was again after week in week five, warming up with the 20-year-olds who were just lovely, I felt very old. And I, and I kind of went, I had so much, I have so much respect for my musical theatre friends who are still doing an eight show. Well, no one's doing it because of COVID, but eight shows a week. So the repetition was challenging. And I have to be honest, I thought I conquered my stage fright and it came back a few times to bite me unexpectedly. And I would, to be honest, go, oh, my God, what's the next line, which is the most terrifying thought when you're in that moment mm. in front of two and a half thousand people in a Disney show. Um, but I tell you, I remember feeling like if I know what this is like as an actor, it can only help me as a director. And I do believe that fundamentally. If I'm going to ask actors to put themselves there on the edge of a cliff, I have to know what that feels like. And <laughs> sometimes it was terrifying. But I, um, I thought it was very humbling to actually remind myself of what that feels like. And so how did you manage stage fright just for anyone else that maybe struggles with it? Were there techniques that help for you or? Look, it's a great question. And I, and I, and I, and I was really confronted by the idea of having been a director for so long and an acting teacher that I had to really practice what I preached, Adam. And, and essentially one of the things that happens with stage fright is that you're not actually listening anymore. And you're not listening to the other person anymore. And my great mentor, Nick Enright, always said, acting is only about the other person. And I do think that is absolutely true too. You're not thinking about mm. what your gesture's doing or what you're... So I could just... I was watching myself so self-conscious because I was terrified, only thinking of myself. And there was this beautiful actor beside me and I'd be going, what the hell are you doing? So I had to... Um, I went through stages where... I just had to literally take the risk with your question, what you're asking and stop thinking about myself and just look at Shubhshri who was Jasmine or look at Adam who was, a, you, know, you know, like I just really had to just listen. And I think listening as it's, it's simple and it's not, but that really helped because if I just started to listen again, I would stop, I would stop feeling self-conscious if that makes sense. But even on a really technical level, I did a lot of things like um, proper breathing. There's a kind of particularly breathing techniques, you know, just to slow down scientifically the adrenaline, the heart rate. I'm doing it right now. You know, I thought that was really helpful. 
downstage left, I would absolutely, you know, breathe in for eight and out for four. And it really did help because what happens with stage fright, your heart rate is so fast. And, and again, you're not, you're not thinking outside yourself. So that's why it feels so terrifying. And I, so I did a lot of that when every, everything started to feel quite muddled. I just breathe and I would listen. And as you mentioned before, uh, working as a director, an actor, or working as an actor and then moving into directing, that can have certain benefits in directing actors. What are some of those other benefits that you've noticed just in being able to connect with actors? Yeah, I, I, I don't even know in all these years that, you know, and I've been directing now probably since 99 to 2020 before COVID. <laughs> but what I do think people say of my style is that I do really love and am challenged by the mind of an actor because I know I was a neurotic actor. I mean that with, <laughs> I'm talking about myself. So uh, when I'm dealing with actors, depending what the piece is about and what their challenges are, I, I really often... I enjoy the kind of challenge of going, what is, what is the issue about? So I love to spend the time not trying to um, bullshit the actor, but to really try to understand what, what often the problem is. And often it's the ego, which we all have. And if I can tap into the ego and try to put it over to the left or to the right, <clears throat> I, I find with my style of directing, it does help the actor. And I often have used my stories as an actor and what I've gone through with the actors I'm working with. And I think that's really helped them because I, actually what I'm saying to them, Adam, is I get it. I completely get what you're experiencing. And they, and they, I guess, Adam, can't go, well, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know what it's like because I go, I do know what it's like. And so um, I've always used my, as my currency the sense of what it takes and the cost of being an actor. And, I, and I've often, if the actor's feeling... Oh, um, challenged or can't kind of grasp the character is not dealing with it. I'd really try to kind of unpick that and, and, and be quite one-to-one -one with them. I've had directors who've directed me who have not been helpful. And I'm sure other people have too, who've just said, just do it or stop thinking so much or, and I, you know, I, whatever, that's, that's fine, but that's not the way I direct. So I, I, I've never done it like that with any kind of musical or play or new work that I've done. <laughs> Yeah, because I guess you can imagine that there's the directors that know what they want but don't necessarily know how to get you there. I think that's very true. And, I, and I've only learnt recently, and it's okay if the director doesn't know how to get you there. Uh, the other thing I should say, which is what you're asking, is it, if, if my ego as the director is in the way and I've got to make this my vision and I've got to make it my um, my show then if I keep using the pronoun my I don't think I'm ever going to get to create this piece what I'm saying is it's actually anything I think I've done particularly new work where it doesn't exist it's so much about being the collaboration with the other actor and I'm always up front I'm very aware when I say the pronoun this is my show or this is our show We've done this, and I do that to empower the actor, and I do that in in mm. in the sense of interviews that I do. That people always know it, it that the actor's contribution with me has made the piece what it is, and I think that's very empowering to an actor because they don't feel like a puppet. And I I think that's just the way I work, and I honestly think 
if if anything that I've gotten right in the particularly with the new Australian work I've done recently, I've had great actors who have contributed, collaborated, and been acknowledged for it. In 2018, you directed Ghost to Musical in Tokyo. <laughs> How did that even happen? I am very grateful to my my um, background of. Uh, because I did a lot of musicals. And in fact, Miss Saigon was the show where I had stage fright as an actor in Sydney. And ironically, that show has stayed in my life, Adam. And I, and I ended up becoming the resident director. And then I, and then Kevin McIntosh asked me to be the associate director. And I did it in England and I did it in Japan and in Korea. So I took Miss Saigon around the world. And um, it was extraordinary. I was so lucky, not only just to be a fl- like a fleeting visit, I would spend 10 to 12 weeks in Japan. And I remember maybe the third time I was doing Miss Saigon, I was talking to the producers and, you you know, when you do that thing, right place, right time. And I said, hey, listen, if you ever are doing a musical or a play and you want, I don't, I, I love Miss Saigon, but if you want me to do something, I, I don't have to be the associate or the assistant I can do. And they, they enjoyed how I worked and then they literally um, contacted me maybe a year later and they talked about let's work together. And that's how it came about. It was working on an old relationship, then created a new relationship. And I um, have a, lo- a long history with Tokyo. I've just done another show, Joseph, Joseph and his amazing technique on Dreamcoat there. And uh, I love working in Japan and I, I have a interpreter and I've made some good friends and I really love the way and their work ethic and the detail, you know, that how they work. And yeah, just on Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, I wasn't sure if that had been put on hold, <laughs> like you'd started rehearsals and then COVID happened or? Yeah, Adam, it was um, absolutely like many people, as you know, in our industry, I was in week two in Tokyo. It was only starting to happen when I flew over, but unfortunately the Olympics were still happening and in, a, in, in Tokyo. So there was a bit of denial going on, I have to say. And so they they kind of had a few cases of, COVID positives, but they were going, we're fine. And even though my friends and my interpreter are going, there are like 3 million people going through Shibuya Station. How can they think it's okay? So there was this weird time where I was rehearsing and they would, of course, um, wear masks because they do in Japan and Korea. They're, they're brilliant at that with hygiene. So there was a part of me going, it's okay, and it's but it's not. And then ScoMo kind of went, we're going to level four in Australia and Qantas is going to close down. And um, I had my family, I had my partner, Max, go, you need to come home. And I went, I can't come home. I can't, I can't. So there was this kind of slight denial of me. I was in the middle of work. I was loving my Japanese friends and, but realizing Australia was falling apart as far as COVID. So I literally, um, unfortunately, I've never broken a contract where thankfully my agent had to do it, but they understood. They went, okay, if you don't feel safe, then you should go home. So I came home and I was, I, I had frantically finished staging the whole show, <laughs> knowing that I probably was going to come home and they kept wanting me to work on it. So I, I, I essentially just kept working via Zoom and Skype and would watch runs and give notes. And then sadly, Oh, it was so terrible. We got up to the day of tech. So that's like four weeks rehearsal or five. And then they cancelled Joseph and every other musical in oh. Japan. And so it, it, it was devastating because it, for two reasons, all that work to get up to a tech, not even the middle of rehearsals, and it got cancelled. But also there's no unions over there, Adam. And so 
uh, performers, they don't get paid until the show operates and opens. And because mm. of no union, what's terrible is, and, I, and some producers are getting better at it, um, they don't necessarily get compensated. And that's a kind of, I feel very, we all as in the West should be feel very privileged that we have a union or we have rights and we have a contract. But um, in Japan particularly, actors don't have any sense of contract or union. So there are some people who've never got paid for those five weeks. In the performing arts, I mean, it can be quite unpredictable, as I'm sure you've experienced. And you know, not everything is a critical success or, yeah, or shows get cancelled or all kinds of things happen. How have you managed to deal with both criticism and praise? Oh, gee, that's a good question. I'm not good at it, to be honest. <laughs> You'd think I'd get better. I, it's fine, as you just said, praise. It's fine when the work is being received well. I feel fabulous and I, I can fly, you know, and I'm, I'm really glad when it all goes well. When, when I criticise as far as, you know, you, you, say the, you say the thing you should never read reviews and it's actually true, but if I have read a review and it hasn't favoured what I've directed, it really does it really does bother me because either I go into ego mode again and then I have to kind of work out and say as an adult, that's their opinion and, that, and, and uh, that's their taste and they're entitled to it. Or I can um, just be accepting that not everyone's going to like it, I guess. And so I don't know if that's answering your question, but Sunbeam, Jesus Wants Me for Sunbeam, which I did with Valerie, was a great example of that. I know the piece... Um, was very controversial. I think it was received very well, but a lot of people didn't like it. They didn't like what it was about. I don't think they liked some of the direction. It wasn't just what it was about. And I found that very tough because it was a real passion project. And I guess when the, when the stakes are high as far as when you believe in something, it, it can be harder when it's not received as well as you think. Um, but that's why you're asking a good question. I've just had to man person it up I've had to kind of go, it actually doesn't matter. The fact that, I know this sounds a bit Disney, but I do think this is true. It took me about 10 years to get Sunbeam to happen. The fact that it had two seasons, the fact that I, I could get to work with some great actors, including Valerie, that's enough. And it really is. Like, I'm thrilled that it affected people so much that they got angry or they cried or they were moved by the idea of euthanasia and about faith and about parents unconditional love I, I love that people were affected by it and i and i and i think if i can only just get that ego out of the way and when someone doesn't like what i've done i think i think that would make me a stronger person and i think i have to keep working on it to be honest adam if i if i was going to bullshit you i'd go I, I really don't get affected by it but i do i am affected by it and i just got to kind of learn that I don't like it. The, the truth is, Adam, you don't like everything you see and I don't necessarily like everything I see. So why in my strange mind do I think everyone has to like what I see? Well, and it becomes so personal, doesn't it? Because you really invest who you are mm. in, in the project. You invest so much. And also as a director, you, 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 you not that you're doing this spell, if you know what I mean, but you're actually creating this contract between the actor and the creative team and you're making everyone go with you so if you're doing so much of that energy and someone goes nah don't like it it's really as a leader or the captain you feel oh, 
shit, you know, that's, that's quite difficult. And unless you've been in that position, when you're responsible for all those people, if something hasn't gone well, that's a, that's a great learning lesson to, 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 um, to go in and go, you know what, we did the best we could do. But it does take a lot. And as you said, you, you ended up doing two seasons. Was that more, more or less challenging going into the second run? you know, after you've getting critical feedback. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really interesting one, that one, because I think a lot of people will say when you, when you've done something and it's been received well, the expectation when it comes back again is that you have to do it better. So that's a problem again, because you go, I have to, and then you go, Oh my goodness, it's Belvoir straight or whatever you're, you're thinking. Um, so because it did so well in Parramatta, and 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 was kind of a, a huge hit, and it only lasted. For, it only was on for a week, so the fact that we had four or five weeks uh, at Belva was wonderful. But there was a lot of expectation to do it, and I think, I think in a lot of ways, from from the the next version we did, um, there were really great things that we got right. I think the thing that it unfortunately couldn't capture was the intimacy. I think the intimacy, the black box feel of the National Theatre Parramatta version in the Lennox Theatre was so like a little voyeuristic experience, Adam. And so when we got to Belvoir, the challenge was for it to expand and the challenge was for it to pre- not, to have the pretense that it was still intimate. But, of course, you're asking the performer to to, to energise it more. I found that very I found I think I'm sure like Valerie and everyone I know Valerie actually really loved she actually really enjoyed the Belvoir version and I know someone like beautiful Emma found that challenging so everyone had a different kind of experience because we had a lot of the original group back and Darren I was wondering in terms of early in your career did you have some kind of plan like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan you know you hear some people are really structured in this is where I'm going you need a plan otherwise it's not going to work how did that unfold for you uh i think the best the best thing about a plan i didn't really have a plan i i knew for instance when i was getting pigeonholed oh well he just assists or does musicals like it's terrible how our industry does categorize you i knew i was very conscious that i had to change that perspective so i made an effort probably about seven or eight years to 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 do my own work and to do plays as far as and not musicals. I was very conscious that I had to, in the Australian industry, be seen to be doing serious text, if that makes sense. Because I, I love musicals too, and I think there are serious musicals, but I knew that I was getting lim- I was being pigeonholed. But um, besides having a strategy, I think the best advice I got was probably from my partner, Max Lambert, 28 years ago, and he said, Darren, you need to... You need to do everything. If you choose to, I only do Chekhov, if I only do musicals, your career and your, your shelf life is very limited. Um, and I think that was a great eye-opener for me because I think now when I look back at when I came out of NIDA in 1998 to now, I've done big events and I'm not showing off. It's just that I've, I've tried to do lots of different things to answer your question, Adam, and that was possibly my plan. I do, do events, I do concerts, I do musicals, I do plays, I do new work. I do. So I've tried to work with a lot of and gotten to know a lot of producers who see me in different ways and I'm absolutely fine about doing commercial theatre. 
um, to to a, s- a small new work at National Theatre Parramatta or go over to Japan, because the truth is, how am I going to make a living if I can? I, if I'm only going to, and maybe that's what your question is. If I only wanted to do new work, I wouldn't have got to fifty two in this industry. <laughs> and as you mentioned earlier, you know, coming up in the eighties as a Chinese actor, you said there wasn't, you know, that was a bit unusual. There have been some instances, probably the most recent one I can think of was when Handa did West Side Story, there was a bit of a kick up about race casting and, you know, getting the right people. Has that been an issue for you? Is that something you've observed throughout your career? It's such a, it's such a treading on eggshell thing. It's such a contentious question too now, Adam, as you know, I, I've been watching Netflix now pull off Chris Lilly and uh, Gone with the Wind. And I feel very concerned and troubled by us seemingly to re- erase history. And, and from an artistic point of view, um, the idea of freedom of expression and the idea of parody and irony, which is what the arts do. I think I'm answering what you're asking. And so I am even more saddened because when I was when I started out as an actor, I and I I would go, oh, I don't see myself on the television. That was one thing, and that slowly that slowly, as I'm as you know, started to change. And you you started to, I mean, I started as an actor, putting on Chinese accents and playing illegal immigrants and refugees and microbiologists. I did it all for ten years, which is one of the reasons I probably had I stopped or had stage fright. I was just sick of not being an Australian, which I am. Mm. Um, but, but what's happened now, and then I've moved into directing to be able to, to do a son, Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam, which is a story about a white middle-class family. And I remember sometimes I got flack because I'd go, well, why aren't you casting an Indian doctor? And I'd go, but it's not an Indian doctor and it's not in the novella and that's not what Stevie and I think the piece is about. It's particularly about a white middle-class family in suburbia in Adelaide. I'm not being racist. That's what it's about. But some people went, but you're an Asian director. You should be. And I was like, oh, for God's sake, can we just calm down? The fact that I'm an Asian director is enough, you know. <laughs> so we went through, I go through that phase. But what's, what, what's, what's really alarming right now, I'm thinking... Is, is, it, is it now impossible to, 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 to tell a story where you're being provocative or actually saying bloody Asian drivers? Now, I can say that, of course, but if a white person like you said that, that would be wrong. Mm. But I guess that's my issue. Why can't you say that if it's done in the right intention and it's saying something politically? We've gotten to the point where you can't even, I can't even cast you to do that, possibly, or I couldn't put, get you to put eyeliner on to look Asian because it will be perceived as being disrespectful, blah, 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 blah. That's the bit where I'm now cranky. Mm. I'm very cranky about where we've, we've come. We have become so politically correct, so dangerously politically correct, and I understand why there's so much, you know, I've heard the conversation, we have to swing the pendulum that far so it can get back to, but I've heard that conversation now, Adam, for at least five years. <laughs> so, um, I, I, yeah, you can see I'm a bit worked up because I don't know what the answer is to it. And maybe as an Asian Australian director, I have to try to work out how I cast something or what I'm trying to say, but I'm worried about we are now censoring pieces of work that that have existed for a long time for a reason what do we do next do we get rid of that the holocaust Mm -hmm. like i'm very nervous that we are now so scared about censorship 
and race that we are not artistically allowed to make a comment. Now, I, I'm really, I know I'm slightly scaling on thin ice, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think I don't know what the outcome, I don't know what the outcome will be, but this question you're asking me right now on the 13th of June is, is quite volatile, I think. I'm actually working with a Chinese musician and an Indian dancer, and we all want to, we all want to just do something where we're not bashing people over the head, and we all want to send each other up, and we kind of said it should be like um a samosa with spring roll stuffing. Like we want to play an Indian, I want to play an Indian, he wants to play a Chinese. We want to just kind of funk it around. But I I think maybe if we can do that, maybe people will calm down a bit that we can make fun of ourselves. I think maybe that's the first step and make people laugh. Um, I think anger and being angry and screaming at people is not the answer. I don't know. I know that, that that's one way of expressing the rage that we feel, but I, I think there's other clever, smarter ways of doing it. When the COVID thing happened and I saw a, a, a Caucasian lady hit this Asian student, I was so angry. You know, I completely was enraged by the ignorance of this girl. But if I then started to go, I need to fight back with, with that kind of anger and heat, I don't know if that's an answer. I hope I'm making sense. So there's got to be other ways, got to be other ways than retaliation. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you've kind of, I mean, with theater, there's that risk of just going for shock, the spectacle, you know, you can lose that subtlety of the performance, but, and, and when you think about it, you know, cause I look at actors going, well, who's, who's the best person to make this happen. And you've also got to think, yes, it's an actor's job to be someone else. That's right. <laughs> Essentially. That's right. So it's finding that balance between, I guess, how, how far that, that goes, but for an actor, it's completely it's normal the, it's to the be balance. like, okay, well, I've got to, for a start, I'm, you know, I'm playing a British, whatever coal miner mm. or something, you know, where does it, where yeah. does it end? Can you not now do accents? Can you not, you know, that's right. That's right. It's exactly, you're absolutely right. And sort of wrapping up a bit. I know that was a, that was a big topic. Uh, just in terms of, sorry. Yeah. That was a huge topic. Yeah, I didn't, I put that in there. I just thought, Oh, well, I wonder if I should just see, is, <laughs> you know, what your answer is to that. No, it's, good. it's good, Adam. I, I'm, I'm feeling it quite. I'm enraged by it and, com- and conflicted by it right now. And I don't have a right or wrong answer. I'm just very confused about it mm. as a theatre maker in Australia. Yeah, and I, mm. I think we should be at least talking about it to figure out yeah. where you know where we where we stand. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was yeah. just wanting to see how you view live performance now. And what role that's that can have in the future? I mean, because it's people have been quite dismissive about it, you know, particularly in Australia, where the focus is very much on sport. Yeah. How do we kind of can move forward, and and what role can performance play? Someone said the other day that surely people are getting sick of just watching the telly, or just you know they want to go and be entertained. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, Max and his friend Natalie did a COVID cabaret on the driveway for the neighbours, you know, and the neighbours, some of them I don't even, I haven't lived here forever, came and thanked us and socially distancing, but they were craving 
for entertainment or just to fit to for and we were craving to give something i just turned the pages for max and natalie sang a heart out but it was so lovely just to do something i have to believe that through plagues and depression light theater it, it there'll be a point where people will want to come back and, and go out and see it i understand why people are nervous and maybe you know there's a version where smaller theater will be easier to get up where somewhere um at the Eternity Theatre or, you know, the Hayes Theatre, there might be only 60 people in a 110-seat theatre. But, hey, that's okay if it's going to start to get people back, mm. um, if we have to follow the laws, because I do think people are craving to feel and to smell and be part of that story. And and your, your question's so intelligent and great because... Zoom can't replace live theatre. And as much as I started when it happened with this COVID, I was kind of enjoying the idea of it and watching readings and all of that, which I think is fantastic and live streaming or national theatre broadcasts. It isn't the real theatre experience. And it's not that I'm being pretentious. It's just not because you can't watch Streetcar Named Desire on as a streamed thing and go, that would have been what it was like sitting watching Gillian Ann, you know, it's not the same. So I, I have to believe that the human instinct, those who do uh, want to see theatre will want to come out, but I do think smaller theatre will happen sooner than bigger theatre. I'm very scared and confused about how there is so much unemployment and so therefore how can people afford to go and see the big shows too, which I, I work in mm. too. Commercial theatre is probably a very risky area of the Frozen and the Hamiltons. It must be very brave of Disney and Michael Castle to, 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 to they should go back and that's what they're aiming towards. But if I was Auntie Mavis from Campbelltown and I, you know, can I afford to go and see Frozen? That's my question. Um, and also because I'm elderly. So all those questions I just, I don't have the answer to, but I have to believe it will because Australia is safe, understandably, in New Zealand. I think maybe, I think New Zealand's going back to normal at stage mm. one. So maybe we will be in our little bubble okay and we can go back to normal. Um, but I, I don't know if I've answered what you've said, but I, I do think people are craving to get out and they want more than just sport. With all my respect to the sport world, <laughs> absolutely go for it. But I do think, and maybe we have to be smart about, my mate Jenny said in Melbourne, there's a theatre company who's going to do more outdoor events. And, and I think that's, that's a possibility. So you're not, you're not in one interior for too long. And, yeah, and there was someone else in Sydney who said, well, maybe you have to do half an hour shows. And to make money, you do it three times a day. And I think a lot of theatre makers are trying to think on that level. How do we, how do we make the system work under these situations so people are not scared and people are safe and uh, or do what Korea does, which they're all back, you know, spray everyone, put the masks on, do the temperature checks. But um, they're kind of going back to the theatre. Um, but you, I don't think you can, you know, it's a phoenix rising from the ashes thing, isn't it? I don't think it it's squashed. And I do think we are so lucky compared to America and, and, and the UK as far as theatre. I think we'll be much faster getting back than there. They will. Fantastic. Well, Darren Yap, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure. And it's, it's always good when I do these things because, you, you know, because especially in this COVID time where you don't use your brain a lot, Adam. <laughs> so it's been really good to have to articulate ideas again. So thank you. 
That's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure you like and follow Adam Deer on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And join me next week on Creative Connections.